right now we have those large models that can do almost anything very well. But I think in the future we'll have smaller models. And this is kind of the bet that we're taking with, with AirTrain and my company. We're betting that people are at some point are going to move from those large models and into smaller fine-tuned models that are cheaper and faster to run. Welcome to the Hyper Engage podcast. We are so happy to have you along our journey. Here, we uncover bits of knowledge from some of the greatest minds in tech. We unearth the hows, whys, and whats that drive the tech of today. Welcome to the movement. Hey, greetings, everybody. This is Hadil, your host. Uh, we are almost like uh, uh, our 110 episodes now. Uh, and, uh, you know, most recently we we started uh, inviting uh, products that are more for developer experience, more, you know, uh, AI heavy products, because uh, they are so much uh, uh, working towards, you know, changing the world, changing the way we work, changing the way, uh, you know, uh, you know, these uh, engineers and engineering and problem solving, they operate, especially machine learning, data science has evolved so much with this. Uh, large language models and you know generative AI uh, in, in the recent past. So I'm, I'm so thrilled to you know invite uh, you know Emmanuel today. He's the he's he's the CEO and co-founder at Airtrain.ai. It's also a YC backed company. Uh, I assume and they are pretty much doing some heavy lifting on the machine learning and AI for uh, no code large, large language model uh, you know infrastructure. So thank you very much, Emmanuel, for taking the time today. Of course, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Love that. Man, I'm quite intrigued by your journey. I'm sure, you know, building a product like AirTrain, it takes a lot of uh, technical skill set uh, on a ground level, on a practical level, not just an academic level. I'm sure you have a PhD uh, in, in, in your field and you have, you're the subject matter expert in domain uh, with the domain experience. How did you see yourself as a software engineer back in the, back in the years starting out? With these companies uh, at scale, you've you've done working, uh, you know, with teams that are doing it at scale, infrastructure engineering, uh, you know, specifically machine learning and and data science. How do you evolve yourself and see yourself as as a different founder today, having all of that experience? For sure. So uh, my PhD is actually not in computer science. I did a PhD in particle physics. I used to do uh, physics research at CERN, the big physics lab in Switzerland with the Large Hadron Collider. Um, but the the skills that I learned during my PhD there are directly applicable to machine learning because even before machine learning was a thing, so it was you know, year 2010 roughly, uh, we were already at CERN dealing with a large amount of data, all the collision data that we were recording. And so we had to process this data at scale. So we had uh, our own sort of academic cloud even before AWS was, was a thing. And so I learned really good practices around shipping software at scale and also uh, dealing with data, like you know, labeling data, cataloging data, processing, and, and so on. So that was for my background. Then when I joined the tech industry, so about 2014, um, I joined Instacart. So Instacart is a large grocery delivery company here in the U.S., and uh, they were in hyper growth mode. So they were getting more and more orders every month, more and more customers. And so uh, in, in order to optimize the business, we had to measure everything that we were doing. 
all the deliveries, every uh, like all the, the time it took to pick certain items, the time it took to drive from a, from the, the store to the the customer's uh, house and so on, and so processing this data was also pretty pretty massive. And then the next step was to work at Cruise, which is a self driving car company here in San Francisco. And so you can imagine that the volume of data that is generated by a self driving car on the road between the image sensors, the lidar sensors the metadata around the drives, uh, and also sometimes like sound clips and so on. You can imagine that this volume of data is pretty huge. So uh, this really shaped my uh, understanding of what it takes to do machine learning at scale. Um, and you know, ML, we we always underestimate that, but it's it's mostly a data problem. Like all things in machine learning and AI, it's a data problem. If you don't have a high quality data set, then your model is not gonna be that good. You can play with the hyperparameters as much as you want. You can train for as long as you want with the best GPUs. If your initial training data is not good, you're not gonna get any good results. So basically knowing how to sift through large amounts of data and remove uh, you know, the problematic instances, uh, kind of try to extract the trends in the data, that's really the most important part of data science and machine learning. And so uh, basically my whole career, I've been iterating on tools to make this as easy as possible for, for uh, engineers that don't necessarily have the skills to do this kind of large scale software. Uh, and so I've been trying to build similar tools. So that's what I'm doing now in my entrepreneurial journey. I'm trying to develop tools that make it much easier for data scientists and ML engineers to iterate on, on their tasks uh, so that they can get to results and insights faster without having to you know, learn how to use Kubernetes or learn how to run jobs in the cloud or learn how to access GPUs or how to package a Docker image and so on. So that's kind of my inspiration, making the technical things easier for people that care more about the insights that you get from data. Mm -hmm. Okay, I have a seldom understand, understanding on, on how this work as a, from a technical standpoint, but uh, I would definitely learn from you. I know you, you're, you're the person capable. I have one question since you mentioned about car manufacturing. Why is this Tesla not so efficient when it comes to autonomous driving as opposed to you know just electric vehicle? There are so many Chinese are making yeah. and they're competing big time uh, in the market. So what is that one reason that they're not able to, apart from all the regulations and everything, yeah, I yeah. believe, I'm sure you do as well, they're not as autonomous as a human would love to yeah. uh, in terms of safety and all of that. Yeah, so there's two major differences between uh, a Tesla and the, the self-driving capability of a, of a Tesla and what companies like Waymo, Cruise, and all the Chinese ones that you mentioned are, are doing. The first difference is that Teslas are only using cameras. They're not using LiDAR. So cameras are great for shapes and colors, but they don't really give you a lot of information about depth, the distance of objects. If you're using LiDAR, LiDAR is like a rotating laser that basically th sends a laser signal and measures the time that the signals take to come back. So you can actually measure the distance of objects. So if you only use cameras to estimate the distance of objects, your error is pretty high. And so it's pretty hard to, uh, to get a car to drive itself in that way. So that's one the first factor. Um, the second factor is that Companies like Cruise and Waymo operate within a very specific uh, geographical area. They are basically robo taxis. They're not individual cars. So you don't buy a car from those companies. You basically book a ride the way you would with an Uber, a Lyft, or, or something like that. So those cars 
operate within a particular domain, so certain streets in San Francisco or Austin, Texas, and, and other cities. So it means that the companies can have very detailed mapping of those streets, can also uh, uh, remove certain streets that are too dangerous or too risky because they're like potholes or construction sites. And so they can diminish the risk of failures uh, thanks to this uh, deep knowledge of the domain area. Uh, the Tesla cars claim to be able to drive you almost anywhere. So you could say, oh, drive me to the top of the mountain. For example, here in the Bay Area, drive me to Tahoe, which is like four hours away. And the car is supposedly able to do that. However, obviously, uh, Tesla does not have very high definition maps of all the details along the routes. And there's many obstacles. You know, you may encounter weather events. There's snow sometimes in Tahoe, in Tahoe and, and so on. So because they take this different approach, so camera only and uh, within an arbitrary geographical area, their failure rates are much higher. I think it's a difference in approach, and you know, I'm not, I'm not sure which one is best, but I think it's a bit safer to start in a, in a confined domain with the best sensors, including LIDARs. It's, it's safer to start this way and then go towards the personal car ownership where you will be eventually able to ask your car to go almost anywhere. Amazing. Thank you very much for clarifying. I mean, I had these, I mean, of course, I knew the fact that they're not so accurate, with that, but of course, there are some reasons behind it. And as you mentioned, since the you you engineers, you understand, uh, you know, all the backstage what, what goes like. And second question that I have about large language models. We get to meet a lot of these products, uh, you know, early on when GPT came up and GPT four, everybody was so excited to you know find a way and ride the wave to get uh, you know generative AI somehow inside their product, even when they're not even PLC or they're very start pre product market fit. And they're trying to do that. And now the trend is, you know, companies that they realize that they cannot achieve uh, the efficiency of, uh, you know, of, of data coming in. I mean, they need to do a lot of prompt engineering. They need to build some models on top that overlaps overla uh, overlaps that data set of ChatGPT, and they need to they need to take it as an augmented source than as a as a native source. Why is that happening? Like, how you see uh, these these big LLMs, like two or three that are that are there, uh, are, are not able to achieve that level of efficiency into problem solving uh, yeah. when it comes to computer science. I'm sure it is quite uh, quite beneficial when it comes to content writing, when it comes to script writing, ads, all of these marketing tools that are doing mm -hmm. uh, pretty uh, pretty handsome. But what about what about engineering? Uh, are you are you asking why they can't do better at coding, or are you? Yeah, better at like why you know all these generative AI models and all these LLMs mm -hmm. can't achieve the level of efficiency when it comes to problem solving on the oh, computer science, yeah. and data science, machine learning, all yeah. of these engineering problems. So actually, the most recent models, including GPT four, there's also CodeLama, Seventy uh, B, who came out a few a couple of weeks ago are pretty impressive in their level of problem solving. So they, they are able not only to actually code uh, a function if you uh, if you lay out the specs for the functions, but they can also architect an entire application, including the code base. There's a few products out there where you basically prompt the product to build me a chat application between two people, between two users, the communication should be real time and so on. And the uh, the model will be able to lay out the, the specs, lay out the, the structure of the repository, structure of the code, and then to actually start writing the code itself. So of course, you still need a little bit of glue between the different aspects and you need a human to review every step because you know they're not 100% accurate. But still, the capabilities of those models are pretty impressive to me. I can see a future in the next few years, maybe within five years, where 
uh, engineers, software engineers will be mostly reviewing code written by, uh, by AI, at least for uh, usual tasks. For example, when you're a software engineer, many times in your career, you have to do all the boilerplate work of you know writing the the baseline the baseline skeleton of your app uh, you know writing some API endpoints writing some authentication all those things that we have to rewrite every every few weeks or every few months all those basic things will be taken care of by AI and humans will review code written by AI review specs write the specs and also will be basically spending their time on more complex problems that the AI cannot solve. So those models are going to become essentially like interns or junior engineers doing sort of the boilerplate work. Um, and, and humans will be able to spend time on more sort of higher level problems and high level architecture. So it's definitely a big shift. And you know I think those models are pretty impressive already. Uh, that being said, I don't think all companies are going to be training their their own models in the future. I think there's going to be a handful of big providers like OpenAI, like Perplexity, uh, like uh, Anthropic and Google and Meta and so on. Um, and uh, companies are going to have to build more specialized models, for example, per language. If you are a company mm. that writes a certain language, like, I don't know, like Go or Rust or C++, then maybe you want to have a copilot uh, an AI copilot that is extremely good at those particular area. Or if, for example, if you're a fintech company, you need to have a copilot that knows all the specificities of writing code for fintech, all the regulation mm -hmm. aspects and, th and so on. So there's going to be a lot more specialized models in the future. Right now, we have those large models that can do almost anything very well. But I think in the future, we'll have smaller models. And this is kind of the bet that we're taking with, with AirTrain and my company. We're betting that people are at some point are going to move from those large models and into smaller fine-tuned models that are cheaper and faster to run uh, so that they can have like more on-prem models instead of having to rely uh, mm -hmm. on cloud-based models all the time. Yeah, and they can ship fast. Like it's, it's all about, you know, you, uh, you know we got to trade against time at all times, like as an engineer as well, with these mm -hmm. large learning models uh, in place. So what is your favorite one? Like there are uh, quite a few handful of them. What yeah. is your uh, best LLM? So I might be biased because uh, I'm French, but I really like the Mistral <laughs> models. <laughs> Mistral AI is a company that came out last October um, and they already, they released their first model, a 7B model back in October. I think it was an open source model. And they released the Mistral Medium model uh, a couple of months ago. And those models are much smaller than the GPT-4 models, uh, mm -hmm. but they're on par almost in terms of performance. Yeah. Uh, you can fine-tune Mistral 7B very easily. Uh, Mistral Medium is, is not open source, so it's not easy to fine-tune it, but uh, the performance is pretty impressive. So I think I'm very happy to see companies that are, are still doing all this amazing work uh, open source because OpenAI, despite the name, is not open source and their models are not open yeah. source which means that they cannot be sort of reviewed by independent organisms and, and benchmarked. We always have to trust OpenAI's word when it comes to you know, privacy and safety and so on. Um, so I really like that there's those open source models out there, whether it's Llama 2 from Meta or Mistral uh, 7B and, and the others. So I really like Mistral. It's actually the one that we use the most at, at AirTrain for fine tuning because mm -hmm. it's, it's really a very, very performant. Uh, so yeah, that's one of my favorites. Yeah, amazing. Thank you very much uh, for, you know, uh, explaining that in detail that why is that is that your favorite? And I'm sure all these listeners and a lot of these are, uh, you know, technical co-founders and founders of, uh, of building these, these products. So now uh, getting on to AirTrain, like, uh, like, where did you get this thought? Of course, you had this domain experience and all like, why did you build this platform? And I mean, what kind of customer segments you're targeting right now? Is this category still there? 
Is it growing or it's still in the making? Yeah, for sure. So uh, just to go back a little bit on my journey, uh, my last job before starting this company was at Cruise, the cell giant car company. I was a senior staff engineer in charge of machine learning infrastructure. So I, I developed, I led a few projects to build infrastructure for machine learning engineers to build models faster, uh, to be able to train models faster and iterate on models and, and retrain the models on a weekly or biweekly basis with new data coming from the road. So basically, I had a lot of expertise in orchestration of training pipelines. And so when I started my own company, my our first product uh, was an open source orchestration framework for machine learning. So to develop training pipelines. So that's what we tried to sell for about a year. Uh, so the name was not AirTrain at the time, it was called Sematic. Um, and uh, we decided to pivot last summer to apply this technology to large language models. So uh, we basically wanted to apply this kind of batch offline compute uh, resource to um, to language models. And so we focused on evaluation at scale. So batch evaluation, when you're trying to evaluate a model on an entire evaluation data set, so like hundreds of thousands of rows, uh, and also fine tuning. So th those are the two sort of big compute workload that have to happen offline. And so we try to address this. And so we built AirTrain to make it extremely easy for people, even without technical skills. So there's no code at all involved to evaluate various models on their test data sets. So if you have a test data set of a few, you know, a few thousand rows, uh, you can upload it to AirTrain and then you can uh, parameterize a number of different models, uh, for example, Mistral, OpenAI models, Llama 2, and, and so on. And you can evaluate the output of those models uh, according to your own criteria. So if you care about, for example, uh, creativity or toxicity, safety, you can see which of those models perform the best. And then you can fine tune also your, based on your data set, you can fine tune the, the, those models. We also have a playground, a free playground that people can use to quickly prompt each model. Uh, so all the models at the same time. So you can set up, you know, three, four, five models side by side and then prompt them all together and see which one give the best answer. Uh, so that's another uh, product that we have. So yeah, the idea is to help people move away from GPT-4 and all those big commercial models because they're very expensive. And so we're trying to make people save money by moving to smaller models. So we're going after product teams that are building, tool building products on top of AI models. So unlike our previous product, which was really targeted at machine learning engineers, this product is more targeted at uh, developers, not necessarily ML developers, just developers that are building on top of AI models. And everybody uses GPT-4 to prototype because it's the best model. But as soon as people want to scale their app, it's usually, it's not really affordable to build a large-scale application on top of GPT-4. It's so expensive. And so we're uh, trying to help them transition to smaller fine-tuned models so that they don't spend as much. Mm -hmm. So this is our target audience. And this is a segment that yeah. is really growing. Oh, yes. Now I understand that. Mm -hmm. it, it's really, really growing. And, you know, all of these companies that initially thought that they could do anything apart from these big giants that are still doing uh, overlapping uh, things on top of chat GPT and uh, all of these language models there because they can do it. They have, uh, you know, the capital and revenue and all of that. But these, uh, you know, startups, they are kind of struggling. Like we, we are also a B2B SaaS company. Just the other day, we were trying to uh, get in touch with a founder that, that was part of our community, YC Bag founder. And we were using that platform for integrations for HubSpot and Salesforce, and that mm -hmm. that product shut down. And now we're trying to make sure that you know how we can not only optimize the cost, 
but also uh, make sure that it's not giving us a technical debt a year or two years later. Mm -hmm. So we need, we need to make sure that we do whatever it is that we are uh, we are doing today uh, that's scalable for for years to come. Mm -hmm. So I mean, same goes for this. Like we are we going to have AI capabilities as well, or are we not thinking about you know at all about you know using uh, these ChatGPT and all these mm -hmm. uh, other language models that are pretty expensive mm -hmm. at scale. Yep. Maybe I mean even if we are funded, we we won't prefer to do that. Uh, and I'm so sure that uh, after this episode goes live, my CTO will look at uh, your product as well. And uh, if he already doesn't know, I'm sure he, he's a strong chance that he already knows uh, what you guys are doing. So I appreciate that you've been pretty elaborate. So what kind of uh, customer segments you're talking about? Of course, product managers, what kind of uh, products, uh, like any AI, it can be generative AI in terms of, uh, you know, on, on the content side and the writing side. Of things it can it can go either way i assume yeah it can go either way it's basically anybody who's built an application on top of one of those large models and is thinking about pushing their application a little bit further in terms of scale but is kind of afraid of their their bills uh being being too high because you know gpt4 and and 3.5 are pretty expensive so we're targeting those companies mm -hmm. Uh, if those if those companies also have requirements in terms of privacy, we can definitely help them there because we can help uh, help them run a model on premise inside their infrastructure so that the, their users' data never leaves uh, their VPC and is never used for training by those those large companies. So we can help them run their own models on premise. So that's also one expertise mm -hmm. we have is on premise deployments because this is what we used to do uh, at Cruise and this is what we used to do also with our with the initial product. Um, so yeah, this is the segment. The good thing about this industry is that uh, it's much wider and broader than just the ML industry before AI. So there's yeah. many more customers out there. Even one interesting thing that I've seen happening in the last 12 months is that now even non-technical people, so like product managers, people that have some high-level understanding of the technical aspects of software, um, can build almost build applications with no-code tools. Now they can hook up, I know, a model with a a rag pipeline, for example, all that without any code. Which means that uh, there's even more than just software engineers that that or even more people that can use those tools. So uh, mm -hmm. I think the no-code segment is going to grow uh, more and more in the next few years. Yeah, just because of AI, absolutely. You know, we get to meet a lot of uh, a lot of founders only last year. You know, that are that have the product management background, have background more in the in the revenue teams, and they're mm -hmm. they're building platforms here, finding right co-founders, and they're building platforms, and they're mm -hmm. now penetrating pretty big. So, like at Air Air Train, what does how does your uh, GTM look like? Like, what kind of uh, customers have you acquired so far? If you just talk about the users, you have a free yep. plan, and then you have a plan that helps uh, you know people fine tune that and all of that. So, is that sort of a high touch model, or is that self served? Yeah, so it's it's self served. Uh, we do have uh, so the self serve product. We have a few. Uh, we had like a few hundred users that are using the self serve product. We also have high touch uh, sort of uh, white glove service for certain customers that we are piloting with. So you know we have a handful of pilots running with uh, companies like from you know early stage to unicorn sized companies where we are doing more of a white glove approach because we're trying to refine the approach, the fine tuning approach. As I mentioned earlier, your fine tuning model, your fine tuning model is only as good as your input data set. So if you want to have a high quality yeah. model, you need to iterate quite a bit on the data sets. And we're trying to make those tools as automated as possible so that it becomes more and more self-served. Uh, but yeah, mm -hmm. in terms of go-to-market motion, we we uh, you know we do obviously outreach and so on. We go to conferences, 
but we also have a YouTube channel that we launched uh, a few months back. So uh, if people are interested in following us and listening to you know tutorial and AI news and so on, they can find Airtrain AI on YouTube and, and subscribe. Uh, I post myself, I'm, I'm the host, I post uh, the videos on a weekly basis. Um, so that, that's one way that we get a lot of traffic to, uh, to, to the, mm -hmm. uh, the app as well. Yeah, and also you have a community that's pretty engaged too, I, I looked up. Yeah, so we have a community uh, back with our old product with with somatic orchestration product we have a, a discord mm. community of a, a few hundred people for airtrain we also have a slack it's not a, it's not very active at this time because we're pretty busy building out the products uh, mm. but we're always welcoming of new people and happy to hear feedback questions we're happy to help people even if they're not paying customers we're always happy to answer questions and help people in their ai journey mm -hmm. wonderful wonderful i mean i was kind of curious on on your process journey uh, from a data standpoint like how you're sitting on top of those data points Let's talk about these uh, high growth free accounts that you you know that that you want to really expand into the fine tune model once they get bigger. Mm -hmm. uh, over time, you're trying to grow sort of a notion model that you have. Mm -hmm. So, how you're seeing on top of those action events like they're they're doing uh, inside the platform are those number of uh, maybe some integrations that they have done. Like, I uh, would really love to understand that. Yeah, so we track our our users' mm -hmm. traffic in two ways. Uh, one, we have some analytics integration. We use PostHog, you know, which is basically this open source mm -hmm. Google Analytics. And so we can measure what our users are doing on the platform. We can even measure what are the most popular models in our playground, see which one we can, for example, deprecate because they're not used anymore and so on. So that's one way in which we measure all the actions that are taken by our, our users. Um, and another way is that we have our inference API where we serve the fine-tuned models that we've prepared. So our users, one they fine -tune, once they've, they've successfully fine-tuned the model, they can query the model through our API uh, and we charge per, per token. And uh, so we also measure this traffic and we, we measure the size of the input, size of the output. We measure the um, latency of the request so that we can optimize it and benchmark it against industry standards and, and so on. So these are the two ways in which we measure. Uh, we also, of, of course, measure the funnel, how people get to our website and get to, into our app, trying to figure yeah. out you know, how many people come from our YouTube channel, how many people come from search, come from uh, ads that we run, comes from you know whether we post on Hacker News or, or, or other forums like that, Reddit. Uh, we try to yeah. attribute this origin as much as possible so we, so we can know what channels work the best for us and uh, so that we can invest more in those. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it seems like your, your uh, you know, API call that you know that is your success metric where you get like uh you know you charge for token like per call right yeah that's right we, we also charge for for fine-tuning although at this time it's still uh it's still kind of free uh, within a limit because we are still integrating with with billing but uh we our main source of revenue is definitely the uh, the api because you know when you are fine-tuning a model you may be running a few you know maybe five or ten jobs trying different experiments but once the model is ready then you don't fine-tune anymore so but but once your model is being served uh then your traffic your app traffic basically translates to uh api traffic for us and so this is where we collect revenue mostly um, so mm -hmm. this is the one that we need to make sure that it's optimized, it's fast, it doesn't fail, the uptime is as, um, as high as possible, and that uh, we can also serve those models efficiently because serving those models requires specialized hardware like GPUs that are very expensive. And so we need to make sure that we utilize those GPUs the most efficiently possible so that we don't burn too much cash on them. Mm -hmm. um, that's also yeah. a big, big part of the engineering work.
Got it. Got it. You know that 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 comes. It's a part and parcel for uh for for a product like this. You got to make sure you optimize the cloud on your end. You're also mm -hmm. serving the free users and then people that find him. You need to make sure uh you charge them uh you know it's a, a comparable like market standard price, but also make sure you 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 cover the mm -hmm. cost and have some yeah. some margin. So. Thinking of uh, the price points on the fine-tune model for an average SaaS that has about 100 customers, they want to fine-tune those data points. On average, how much would it cost for our audience to be? Yeah, so typically uh, a fine-tuning job is, uh, of the. of course, it depends on the size of the input data set, yeah, but it's usually of the order of between five and $10 for one job. So it's fairly cheap. Uh, you may have to run a few jobs to iterate on the results and the output. Uh, so overall, it's not gonna you know, break the bank. Um, so, and then after that, we are charging per million tokens. So a million token is roughly a million words. And so, uh, we're charging, uh, on that basis in terms of the price point, it depends on what model it is, but, uh, we are definitely competitive with all the other providers out there. We're not trying to do a price war. Uh, it's not our goal because of course mm -hmm. others can get much cheaper potentially. Uh, we're just trying to give people a good experience and make sure that they get value from the, from the, the platform. Uh, we are a pre-revenue startup, so we have revenue, but it's not like we're trying to get profitable at this time. We're just trying to make mm -hmm. sure that our customers are satisfied and keep coming back. So we're not going after a price war with our competitors here. Mm -hmm. yeah, absolutely. I love that. I love that. So what is it? This is one last question. Uh, we're pretty much on time. I appreciate that you, mm -hmm. you know, it's been two minutes past and I was absolutely into this conversation. One last thing. What is that 10x feature that you are, you think that you have today inside your platform or you're going to build in the future? Yeah, so we're uh, about to build more tooling around dataset management. Um, so the data loop is historically, even before the AI wave, was uh, is both the most important in, in machine learning is the data loop. It's what's called a data loop, basically iterating on data, getting the raw data, filtering it and so on, and then, and then getting it ready for training. So it's both the most important and also the most underserved because data is no longer a sexy um, sort of uh, product area. People want to build models and build impressive things, but uh, the data side is usually a bit more uh, tedious. And so fewer companies are going after it. And so we are hoping to build some data set management and data set cleaning and, and, and uh, optimization tools for people to quickly identify in their training data sets the uh, examples that are uh, bad, so low quality, so that they can filter them out. So to increase the quality of their data sets and also the sort of the holes uh, in the data set. If there's any missing data for a particular type of usage, they can you know use AI to actually generate synthetic data. It's actually a pretty common practice now to generate synthetic data. Mm -hmm. So we would like to help our users build uh, a data set that covers, has a flat distribution across all the use cases that they want to serve so that the fine-tuned model is the highest possible quality for that. So we're going to be building that in the next few weeks. Uh, but in terms of what's really popular right now in our product, it's really our playground. So it's free for people to use. So all uh, your listeners can sign up today and basically they can compare, uh, you know, Gemini with GPT-4, with Mistral, all side by side with the same prompt. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you send one prompt and all those models oh, will respond at yes. the same time. Uh, so it's it's pretty entertaining because you can see how the small models do. Sometimes you can you give them riddles and the big models fail, but the small models do well. Uh, so it's a pretty entertaining. I'm going to try that first in the morning. Yeah, for sure. First thing in the morning. Do, do sign up. It's really easy. It's a playground. Uh, and mm -hmm. you can, I think we support maybe 12 or 14 models at this time. So you can really put them all side mm -hmm. by side. All the, all the Llama models, all the Mistral models, mm -hmm. all the Gemini. 
uh, and so on. So that's that's pretty entertaining for people, for people to get a, a sense of how those different models perform. Love that. Very smart. Like in the first thing that you mentioned that you're trying to enable your uh, customers to better and faster fine tune their data sets. Mm -hmm. So that's your success matter. That's very smart uh, of you, uh, Manuel. I really appreciate your time today and it was a real powerful conversation. Thank you very much for helping me understand these uh, you know, nitty gritties and technologies and being my teacher, you're such an educator. Thank you very much. Well, thank you so much for having me. This was a pleasure. Love that. Have a good rest of your day. Thank you so very much for staying with us on the episode. Please share your feedback at adil at hyperengage.io. We definitely need it. Uh, we will see you next time with another guest on the stage with some concrete tips on how to operate better as a customer success leader and how you can empower engagements with some building some meaningful relationships. We qualify people for the episode just to make sure we bring the value to the listeners. Do reach us out if you want to refer any CS leader. Until next time, goodbye and have a good rest of your day.